Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And as we turn there, we, I will remind you that we are now beginning um, the final section of Luke's gospel. So if you think through our study of Luke, the first two chapters contain the birth announcements, the birth stories of both John the Baptist and of Jesus. Chapter 3 focused on the ministry of John the Baptist. And then from chapter 4 through chapter 9, verse 50, was Jesus' Galilean ministry, characterized by his preaching and teaching in the synagogues and his working of miracles and healing the sick. But then the largest chunk of Luke's gospel began, starting in 951. You remember, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And since that verse in chapter 951, we have been over 10 chapters single largest portion of Luke's gospel, traveling with Jesus and his disciples and the great crowd heading to Jerusalem. And two weeks ago, we read the text of Jesus' triumphal entry, as it is so-called, into Jerusalem. And now, starting in 1945, Jesus is now at his destination. This is his final trip to Jerusalem before the cross. And we now begin the final week of his life. This last section of Luke's gospel, beginning in 1945, going all the way through the end, it contains the conflict in Jerusalem, or Jesus' Passion Week and his resurrection and post-resurrection appearances. And so it is remarkable, as we look at this passage, and we'll read it in just a moment, Jesus having been heading here, having been traveling for nearly a year, and us taking about as much time following along, what does he do when he gets there? Why is he going to Jerusalem? What will the Messiah, the son of David, so heralded just verses before, do upon his arrival at the great city of David, the temple city, Mount Zion? Let's read Luke 19, 45 to 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Lord God, as we study your word, we pray that you would show us Christ. Here is our Messiah. Here is our King. Here is our prophet. Here is our sacrifice. Here is our great high priest. In your house, help us to see his glory, to hear his rebuke, and to listen attentively to his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text unfolds over two events. First, Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And second, the leader's frustrated conspiracy. And yet there's a lot here to look at. Now Luke has been building anticipation of his arrival at Jerusalem. That anticipation began earlier in um, chapter 18, I believe, 35. He drew near to Jericho. Four times we're told Jesus drew near. First, he drew near to Jericho in 1835. And then 
in chapter 19, 28, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. Verse 37, chapter 19, he was drawing near already on his way down the Mount of Olives. And 1941, when he drew near and saw the city. So echoing in the reader's ears, Jesus is drawing near. He's drawing near. He's getting closer. He's almost there. And now he's there. In fact, interestingly, Luke skips over an actual entrance. It's assumed, because his focus is, what will this son of David, what will this Messiah king do upon entering Jerusalem? He's entered his disciples, citing a royal psalm, identifying him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the king of Israel. That's what they'll write above the cross. Here is the Messiah. What will this king do? What will Messiah do? Well, it's, it's pretty clear what he does. Luke skips by any of the other introductory matters and gets right to the point. He entered the temple. And we, we looked at two weeks ago how Jesus' route down the Mount of Olives, into the Kidron Valley, up the other side, through the east gate, into the temple. It's the exact route in reverse that the Lord's glory took as it exited Jerusalem just prior to Nebuchadnezzar's assault. And what he does is he goes to the temple and he drove out those who sold. This is remarkable. Now, the other gospel accounts carry more detail, focusing on the whip and the flipping of tables. Luke doesn't. He just summarizes the event. He began to drive out those who sold. And so I want to look at this within the context of Luke's gospel. Now, interestingly, when was the last time we saw Jesus in Luke's gospel in the temple? It was all the way back in chapter 2. Remember, his parents were looking for him for three days. And when they found him, he was sitting in the temple. They found him after three days, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his answers and his understanding. And his parents, his mother said to him, why have you done this? And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? So now for the first time in Luke's gospel, since chapter 2, Jesus has returned to the temple. Before he came as a student to learn, now he comes as a king and he takes charge. He seizes possession of it and he drives out those who sell. And so he explains. There's the expulsion of these sellers, but then we get the explanation. What's the problem? Why, why is this wrong? Because one could argue in one sense that then they provide a necessary service. I mean, if you're traveling to, to Jerusalem every year, you can bring your sacrifice with you, and that's going to slow you down, and that's going to cost money. Or, very helpfully, you could buy a sacrifice there. And there's the temple tax, which the uh, scribes and Pharisees are going to ask him about next, in our next chapter. And you might need to change money to pay that. So in one sense, one could argue that this service is, is necessary and helpful. And it's not fundamentally the service that they're providing that Jesus is rebuking. His rebuke is, is critical for us to understand his explanation because he cites Old Testament passages. Now, Jesus will just grab a phrase from two separate passages. We're going to look at them in detail as they help... Um, I think they'll help us understand what his complaint is with what is going on in this temple. He drives out those who sold, saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So please turn in your Bibles now to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. This is the first of the two passages Jesus cites. And as Jesus explains what he is doing, and, and consider the 
audacious authority Jesus is assuming. The scribes and the priests and the Sadducees rule the temple. The chief priest, high above all, who is this man who would take possession of it, shut down this business that has been carried on presumably for years? Well, he's the son of David and Israel's king. And so his first explanation is based on the fact that he understands the temple's true design. Understand what's wrong with the selling taking place. You need to understand the temple's true design. I'm gonna, he quotes from verse 7 of Isaiah 56, but I want to start in verse 1. The temple's true design, what is its purpose? Thus says the Lord, keep, righteousness, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So he, he cites two groups who might feel excluded, marginalized. There's the foreigner and the eunuch. The foreigner's not an Israelite by birth. And there's a court for them in the temple, but it's the court of the Gentiles. But Israel's history, the Messianic line itself, is, is got Gentiles in it. Rahab, Ruth, the Moabitess. And so he says, let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say. The eunuch is someone who is unable to reproduce. And in a culture, I mean, we've got eight chapters in Chronicles devoted to genealogies. And especially in the agrarian culture where children and progeny are valued and prized, these people would, might view themselves as without hope lesser. God says, no, no, these, these people who might be marginalized on the outside, let them not say these things. Behold, I'm like a dry tree, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's a wonderful promise. Then he turns to the foreigner. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbaths and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus cites the true intention of the temple. And what the true intention of the temple is a place for outcasts, people on the fringe, foreigners, eunuchs. We've already seen Jesus extend his, his love and compassion to the blind, the poor, the lame, the orphan, the widow, the purpose of the temple is that those types of people who love God and keep his covenant are welcome. And rather than being put down, they're, they're blessed. The eunuch is given a name better than sons and daughters. The foreigner comes and offers sacrifice. That's the temple's true intention, a place for, for all manner of people to draw near to God who hold fast to his covenant. That, that's his purpose and intention. That's what Jesus' ministry has epitomized, has it not? 
the weak, the poor, the blind, the outcast. He, he has time for them. They come and draw near to him. You think of the sinful woman wiping his feet with her hair. But in contrast to that, Jesus says, you have made it a den of robbers. Turn, turn now to Jeremiah chapter 7. So that's his true design. Israel is meant to be in light to the nations. And Israel's temple of all places should be a place for the poor, the outcast, the weak. Those poor, outcast, and weak who have faith in Yahweh, who hold to his covenant, are welcome, are comforted. Now listen to the rebuke of Jeremiah 7. He understands the temple's true design, but he sees the temple's current degradation. He understands the temple's true design, but he sees the temple's current degradation. Again, we'll pick it up in verse 1. The word of the Lord, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men in Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. So the first warning is the Jews were tempted to think of the temple kind of as an impenetrable lucky rabbit's foot. Just as um, Eli's sons before had taken the ark into battle with the Philistines, imagining that it made them invincible. They were taught wrong. They were taught differently. So the Jews of, of Jeremiah's day, even being told that Nebuchadnezzar would triumph, that Nebuchadnezzar would take them captive, destroy the temple, the, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is impenetrable. That's why it's so important in Ezekiel's prophecies, concurrent with Jeremiah, that God has abandoned ship, he's left the building. Because yes, if the Lord truly were dwelling in the temple, it would be impenetrable. But he, he, he had left, forsaken Israel as they had forsaken him. And so he warns them not to simply trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Rather, be faithful. And, and so Jeremiah says, if you'll be faithful and obedient and do justice, I'll let you stay here. But verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, Commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah, he's calling out their religious hypocrisy. These are people who who are not loving the widow and the sojourner and the orphan. They're, they're robbing from one another. They're lying to one another. They're stealing each other's wives. They're swearing falsely. They're going after other gods, and yet there's this pretense of religion. And they're coming to the temple. Oh, God will deliver us. I know Nebuchadnezzar's on his way, but God will deliver us, the temple of the Lord. He says, these are deceptive words. When you, when you have a hypocritical religion, that's exactly what Jesus has been calling out the religious leaders of his day. They have a semblance of religion. They have phylacteries on their foreheads, and they, they 
write God's word and nail it into their doorposts. They do not love justice or mercy or God's word. And evident in the temple are these people who are, you could argue, making a, a useful service, but in reality, taking advantage of, preying upon these people. It's a den of robbers. What may look like a public service is, in fact, an opportunity for avarice and greed. So the very people who should be welcomed, who should be nurtured, who should be invited in into God's temple are being preyed upon by religious hypocrites. And that's why Jesus drives them out. It may look like it's the true religion, but it's hypocrisy. And in reality, it is preying upon their countrymen, it's preying upon those who would come. And so Jesus, as the king, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the son of David and the son of man, drives them out. So there's the expulsion, Jesus' explanation. Turn back to Luke 19. I also want to point out the example. You can't miss this if you read this in context. Jesus has just entered being heralded as Israel's Davidic king. First, we had the blind man on the road to to Jericho. Son of David. Then more explicitly, in the triumphal entry, verse 38 of 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why might a king go straight to the temple? Well, on on the one hand, Psalm 118, they quote, that's exactly what the king does. He goes to the temple. But I want you to notice this. What the Messiah King does upon entering Israel is he reforms their worship. The Messiah King reforms Israel's worship. And in this sense, Jesus is standing in a long lineage of righteous kings in Israel. There's not many of them, but the ones who were there have always reformed Israel's worship. And usually it's the first act of their kingship. Listen to 2 Kings 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, The son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he entered 29 years, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nahushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So for anyone watching, hearing Jesus being heralded as Israel's king, this act sets him in that pattern of the righteous kings of Israel. As Israel's king, what's the first thing he does? He reforms their worship. He brings it back to its intention. He purifies it. He takes charge of the temple. Israel's king is holding court, as it were, in the temple. A temple which he has just pronounced destruction on. There's, there's some remarkable Remarkable intentionality of our Lord here. He has just declared in verse 44 of chapter 19, they'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem is a doomed city. And in 70 AD, Roman general Titus did exactly that. 
And even though Jerusalem is a doomed city, and even though Jesus is fully aware the nation as a whole will reject him as their king, he is still functioning faithfully. He goes to the temple. He cleanses it. In other words, he doesn't say this is a lost cause. It's not going to work anyway. He is faithful to the end. He is faithful to the end. And so he evidences himself truly as Israel's king, as David's greater son. He cleanses the temple and he reforms Israel's worship. Okay, that's what Jesus does. But Luke wants to cast in stark contrast to what our great God and Savior has done, response to the religious leaders. I told you last week, we saw, not last week, two weeks ago, we saw for the last time the Pharisees. They drop out of Luke's gospel and some new villains, as it were, enter. And here we see them in our passage. As he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So, so, so Israel's great king has come. And like the other great kings before him, he has reformed their worship. He's taken possession of the temple. He has driven out those who would abuse and prey upon the people. Israel's religious leaders rejoice. Do they celebrate this? No. They hate him. And the class of opponents that Jesus is now faces extends. We've already seen the chief priests and the scribes, but now it's broadening further. The principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Look in chapter 20, verse 1. It's going to be slightly broadened further. Um, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up. In verse 19 of chapter 20, the scribes and the chief priests again will try to attack him. In verse 27, the Sadducees. And so what we're seeing is in every strata, the leadership of Israel, be it the the priestly leadership, the lawyer, Torah interpreting leadership, the Sadducees, the elders, the principal men, they hate Jesus and they're plotting to destroy him. But first, Luke gives us Jesus' pattern. Luke gives us Jesus' pattern. I love this. We are now in the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life prior to the cross. What does our Lord do? He knows he's going to die. He knows when he's going to die. If you had one week to live, what would you do? And Jesus' pattern has not changed. Luke Luke tells us he was teaching daily in the temple. It's absolutely remarkable how faithful our Savior is to the very end. When Jesus first entered the scene in his ministry in chapter 4 of Luke, if you remember, after being tempted in the wilderness, after being baptized, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And as we were studying those chapters, we saw him again and again going, teaching, teaching, teaching. Jesus was first and foremost a teacher. Chapter 8, verse 1 gives us that same paradigmatic statement. Soon afterwards, he went through all the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. What does Jesus do on his final week before the resurrection? The same thing he's been doing for the last three, three and a half years. 
Because his commission, if you remember in chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. So whereas you and I might think, man, i got some hard times ahead of me. I might want to take it easy, catch my breath. Jesus is pouring it out to the very last drop. He is teaching the people in the temple. What he's teaching, we get some of the content in, in chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, he's bringing the good news to the poor, to the captives, to the blind. That's what he's doing. And in this we see... We've seen, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, that he is Israel's great king. But here, another one of Jesus' offices is emphasized. Here, we see that he is God's prophet, bringing his word to the people. There's a sort of put off, put on. What's put off is the people selling things. They're out. What's in its place every day? God's prophet is speaking God's word to God's people. Now, Jesus has already been identified as that prophet. You remember when Jesus went up on the mountain in chapter 9, just before the turning point where he sets his face to go to Jerusalem? God the Father himself says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And that may not mean much, but turn, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. To Deuteronomy 18. We are looking for a prophet and a priest and a king. In the triumphal entry, Jesus' kingship and his regal claim is highlighted, but here we see his prophetic ministry. Even inciting Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus is functioning in the tradition of the prophets, but listen to this prophecy given by the Lord to Moses. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from all your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God to see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, he will speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. This is the prophet. If you, if you remember in, in John chapter 1 when they come and question John, are you the prophet? This is who they're talking about. And what's the point? You're supposed to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, the Lord's going to require it of you. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And so Jesus casts out the corruption. What does he put in his place? He is teaching every day. He's functioning as Israel's prophet, bringing God's word to the people. God's prophet brings his word to the people. There's one other point of this, that Jesus himself will make in two chapters, and that is this. Jesus is surrounded by enemies. At every level of the strata of the people, he has people seeking to destroy him. Whether it be the scribes, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the elders, the principal men. And they will ultimately, in a sense, succeed. They, they will get him crucified. But notice that our Lord, Jesus, is entirely unafraid of his enemies. Because if he's preaching in the temple every day, he's predictable, he's in a public place. 
You can expect him there. Turn, turn two chapters forward to chapter 22. At Jesus' mock trial, as they come to arrest him, he will make this very point. His enemies are cowards. But he is unafraid of them. Verse 52 of 22. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you, day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. Jesus is completely unafraid of them. He knows they're there. He knows what they're going to do to him. He isn't scared. He's publicly, boldly teaching, feeding God's flock, giving God's word to the people to the very last day. That's our great God and Savior. He's our king. He's the prophet. Also notice the shift. Last time Jesus was here, what was he doing? He was sitting at the feet of the teachers. He was learning. Evidence and great wisdom and amazing people with his answers. He's not learning anymore. He's the teacher now. He returns, taking control of the temple. He's doing the teaching. So that's the pattern, Jesus' pattern. Now we see the plot. Israel's leaders were seeking to destroy him. Now, this has been going on for some time. Most recently in chapter 11, in verse 53, the Pharisees were intent on destroying him. In verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And so throughout the gospel, this has been intensifying the opposition, and now probably the strongest statement, they want to destroy him because they hate him, proving that they have refused to receive God's rebuke. They have refused to receive God's rebuke. Jesus cites Jeremiah 7. He says the problem is hypocrisy. The problem is you want to, on the one hand, go and abuse people and lie to them and cheat them and rob them and worship other gods, and then you want to show up on Sunday or on the Sabbath, and you want to put your good clothes on, you want to look religious, that's not going to fly. And he's citing scripture that they would recognize as scripture, and it just goes right off them. They refuse to hear God's rebuke, and citing back to Deuteronomy 18.19, they have refused to listen to God's prophet. So not only do they refuse to hear the Old Testament warning that Jesus cites against them, they refuse to hear his words. He's teaching every day. He's preaching the gospel. God's own son is present in God's house daily, teaching and preaching the gospel. They won't listen. They won't receive his rebuke. They want to destroy him. And in contrast, we learn this. Whereas Jesus is entirely unafraid of his enemies, these cowards are afraid of the people. They don't do anything, we're told. Why? Because the people are hanging on his words. To make that point even more clear, look in chapter 20. They come up, and what's going to happen in chapter 20 and 21 is they're going to make three attempts to try to get Jesus. They're afraid to overtly, publicly grab him and snatch him. So they try to trap him in words. They're going to come up and ask him about his authority. They're going to ask him about this tax to Caesar. And the Sadducees are going to make some lame gambit with a made-up story about seven brothers and a woman. That's what they're going to try to do until finally they quit that. But in the first attempt, they challenge him about his authority in verse 2. 
and said to them, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And the things are, he just took charge of the temple. Up to that point, the Sadducees had been running the temple, the high priests had been running the temple. Jesus is holding court in the temple. They want to know by what authority. They don't directly have the boldness to challenge him. So by what authority? But then Jesus responds by asking, saying, let me ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered and said they did not know. But well, we, we don't know Jesus. These men are cowards, liars. Stated even more clearly in verse 19 of chapter 20, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They outnumber him, a hundred to one. And they're afraid of him. He is fearless in the face of them, and these cowards are afraid of him. He's publicly teaching every day. They could come and get him if they wanted to. If they had any real charges to bring against him, there he is, and they, they don't do anything. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of the people. And now we get one last positive note. So Israel's king has come. Israel's prophet has come. He is teaching. He has reformed their worship. He is preaching the good news of the kingdom. He is teaching daily in the temple. The leaders, the leading men, the chief priests, the scribes, they hate him. They want to devour him. There are some. In contrast to that, the people were hanging on his words. Point C, the popularity. The people were hanging on his words. No man ever spoke like this man. I mean, think about it. Here is the word of God speaking God's word. Here's the word incarnate, the one who wrote the Bible, speaking God's word in God's house. And he was captivating, absolutely captivating. It reminds me of his first public sermon in Luke 4, where he stood up and he read the scroll of Isaiah that I read a few moments ago. Today in your hearing, the scripture has been fulfilled. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. The people, in contrast to their leaders, were hanging on his words. So there were some, there always are some, there's always a remnant whom God has chosen who will receive God's word, God's prophet. They have listened to God's prophet. They have taken the divine counsel given on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. They have. They have. And so even in the face of the national rejection of Israel, there's still a large enough group of people listening to Jesus' words that they can be identified as the people in contrast to the priests, the principal men, and the scribes. And they're hanging on his words. God is still, even in these last hours, saving, drawing, strengthening, nourishing his flock. So it's a study in contrast. Israel's king, Israel's Messiah, purifies the worship of his people. He functions as their prophet. And this holds true for us. We still have a prophet and a priest and a king in Jesus. And he still cares about the purity of our worship. 
Jesus told the woman at the well, God is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. Religious hypocrisy is still detested by our God. To go Monday through Saturday and live one way and come here and sing wonderful songs to God doesn't fool God. It only makes him provoked. And when we look for where to turn for our wisdom, oh, the world, Oprah, Dr. Phil, there's all sorts of places you can turn to. We still have one great prophet speaking God's word to us. We hear it in his word. It rings through every page of scripture. And so, ultimately, you and I need to pick our team. Do we identify with those who are indignant, angry, want to try to find ways to work around what Jesus says, or are you those who hang on his words? Now, I hope and trust we are that latter group. Our, our Savior is great. He is fearless. He is compassionate. He, he's last week, and he's just every day serving the people, teaching God's word to them, speaking the words of life to them. And one, one further thought of application I could think of is this. Jesus identifies the function of Israel's temple was to be a welcoming, comforting, encouraging place for the outcast, for the, the foreigner, for the eunuch. And Jesus will later identify himself as Israel's temple, destroy this temple in the three days, I'll raise it. And, and that still holds true, is it not, that Jesus himself is, welcomes the, the foreigner, the, the eunuch, the outcast. But in Jesus' absence, as he has ascended to heaven, where, where is God's church? Where is God, I just gave the answer away. Where is God's temple on earth, right? But the Apostle Paul tells us we are the temple of God. Not this building, the people, we're the temple. And it should still hold true for us that God's temple is a place of comfort and encouragement for the foreigner, for the eunuch, for the widow, for the orphan, for the weak, and the outcast. And we should be careful lest we prey upon those same people who God cares so much about. So the Messiah is in Jerusalem. The conflict is set. Over the coming weeks, we're to see there are three attempts to try to trap him. Jesus will also speak three parables, three teachings to rebuke them. But for now, let us just worship at the glory of our God, the grandeur of our Savior, and hear his rebuke. Let the words of Jeremiah sink into us. Let the words of Isaiah sink into us. What our worship should and should not look like. Let's pray. Lord God. You care for your people and our purity. You care for your temple. And we are that, being built up into a holy temple, not, not a building with stones, but still a building for your glory, a house of your name. And while we bear that name, Lord, we want to be a house of prayer. We want to be a place welcoming the nations, welcoming the poor and the outcasts. Guard us from beginning to devour the flock, even as Israel's pastors and teachers did of old. And Lord God, we celebrate how great our Savior is, how fearless, how bold, how committed to the end. He fulfilled the task that you gave him to fulfill. He was faithful. And we rejoice that our Savior is so glorious and wonderful. Lord God, help us to live as his people. Help us to likewise speak your words, the glory in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.
you are dismissed.